Joan Sutherland spoke on the Lankavatara Sutra at the Equinox Retreat in 2012. This is part two. So we dive into the pool of the Lankavatara Sutra, enter that world, and we'll, we'll come in the same way the Lanka came to China, which was with a, an Indian monk who traveled along the Silk Road from India to China, bringing the, the Indian, the Sanskrit version of the, of the Lanka with him. And um, I'm sure, you, as you know, the, the Silk Road was a trading route through Central Asia from India to China. And at that time, which was, I think, the 5th century, it was such a rich and vibrant place and a place of mixing of cultures in, through these, these towns that dotted this trading route. And so much of um, what we think of as, as Buddhism developed in these towns and cities along the Silk Route where people from all different cultures met and mixed and um, corrupted each other and translated and did all kinds of things like that. So this monk actually translated the Lanka Vatara Sutra from Sanskrit into Chinese in one of these cities on the, on the way, on the Silk Road, and then went on into China. And in addition to being um, obviously a, a, a scholar and a literary person, he was famous as a, a magician. And that was a time in northern China in particular where the country had sort of devolved into all of these little warring states. And so magicians who were effective were in great demand in the imperial courts to lob um, magical things at their enemies. So he got a job really easily when he got to China. And the, the result of that was the, the, the uh, warring magician thing didn't work out too well. The, the, uh, empire for which he, or the kingdom really, I should say, the kingdom who hired him ended up being absorbed by a different kingdom. But the Lankavatara Sutra, having hitched a, a successful ride on him, made it into China and became this really important thing. So the law of un- unintended consequences, the, mm-hmm. <laughs> the um, magical statecraft, not so good, but Lankavatara Sutra transmission, really good. Um, okay, so I, I introduced a little bit last night about the, the basic ideas of the sutra, and we'll go into, into more depth about them today. And if th- th- this can be chewy territory, because as I mentioned, it's a, it's a very dense and subtle um, philosophical text. So if there are things that just really aren't making sense to you as I, as I go along, don't, don't be afraid to, um, to ask immediately. There are two main themes of the of the sutra. The first is this thing it's describing that it wants us to understand about the nature of human life and, and reality. And then this this idea that there's a way to do it. And the way to do it, which was um, a powerful message at the time, the way to do it is this kind of inner realization, a, 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 a deep coming to know the truth of, of one's own self. Uh, and to experience that in not just in your meditation but very much in your life was the way to to um, relate to this this what would otherwise be only philosophical material. 
So in the sutra, the Buddha says that the world we think is real is nothing but the perceptions of our own mind. That's not exactly a startling idea. And our version of it today um, here in, in a lot of Western culture is you create your own reality. But that's not what this means at all. Um, and the basic problem with, from a Buddhist perspective of the you create your own reality idea is that you're still setting up a duality. There's still a you creating a reality. There's still a subject and an object, a perceiver and a perceived. And anything that's, that's founded on a duality like that can't be right. <laughs> so, so it's not that. It's not that we... Um, we, create, we, each of us as an individual, creates a reality which is somehow different and separate from us. Um, instead, there's this much, to me, much more beautiful possibility that the sutra presents, which is that what we don't realize is that reality is continuous from our minds into the so-called external world. It's all one thing. And where we get into trouble is exactly when we make the duality between subject and object. And we do that by um, creating projections with our heart-minds, throwing them into the world, making the mistake of thinking that the projections are real, and and then developing relationships with the projections. And the the sorrow of that is that what we give up in that process is that experience of the continuousness of heart, mind, and world. The one field, the, the unity of everything of which we are a particular instance, but not the creators and not the receivers, but a part, a participant. And if you, if you think about that, that separation out of ourselves as the subject, ourselves as the perceiver, ourselves as the projector, the, ourselves as the self, is, is sort of like, um, you know, that's, that's the original fall from grace. You know, that's the moment at which everything shifts. Um, and the moment at which the possibility of the, the kinds of suffering that we're so familiar with really comes into play because we have, we have alienated ourselves um, from this essential and natural unity of all things. And, and I want to say that when I speak like this, I'm not shaking my finger at us. There's got to be a reason that it's absolutely essential that we do this. And I hope that that's one of the things that we take a look at, um, you know, which, which came up this morning when we were talking about the exhaustion, that there is, there, is for some, there is a reason somehow that we must, as human beings, as human consciousnesses, separate ourselves out so that we can return. But the process of return seems essential to the making of a human being. Um, so the Buddha says, um, because the various projections of people's heart minds appear before them as objects, they become attached to the existence of their projections. 
And then the question becomes, of course, how do we get free of such attachments? And the Buddha said, by becoming aware that projections are nothing but mind. So is that, that part's kind of clear? We separate ourselves out from this natural unity of all things, and then we throw out all these projections into the world, we make the mistake of thinking they're real, we come into relationship with them, and we have a life lived in relationship to our own projections, rather than with what's with the natural state of our minds, which is to experience that which is continuous between inside and outside, so-called self and other. Okay? I have a question. Mm. Maybe it's... I'll ask it, and then if you'd like to defer it, that's fine with me. So... um, so I sit here, I look at this floor, and um, there's a sheen on the floor, and it reflects some of the light, and it's, but it's very irregular pattern, and so I, see, I can see, you know, these nondescript patterns of light, but there are strips of darkness in between the blobs of light, and so there truly is a pattern there. And I know, even without realizing that in my peripheral vision, I know that there's that bank of clear story windows. I, I, I remember those windows, and I can um, recognize that the dark strips in between the light are caused by the strips in between the windows. Mm-hmm. And so, is that what I'm seeing? Not, no, because there's this interplay of the sensory perception with memory mm-hmm. and with, mm-hmm. uh, that allows me to, to see patterns. Mm-hmm. And so pattern recognition is, you know, an early stage of cognition beyond sensory intake mm-hmm. that integrates concept with with that sensation. And um, it doesn't uh, it doesn't seem to me to be heavily predicated upon the fabrication of a self. Mm-hmm. I don't it's not it's not really a projection. It's something lower than that. Um, so you know I know I I mean I feel like I know through practice to feed low on the skandhas, to not immediately jump to consciousness, <clears throat> to not interpret everything through some absolutist value system. But the, the mind is designed to put together experiences and find patterns and grow those patterns into a broader understanding. And so for me to... It's helpful to me in making sense to know when I see those lines on the floor, not just go, hmm, I wonder what the hell those things are, but to be able to say, those are caused because the light's coming through the windows and there are strips in between the windows. Mm -hmm. And so that helps me, it helps me know. Now, (laughs) so I guess what I'm saying is that I'm not sure that this business of 
living in the projection and imagining the projection is real and thereby being deluded as a, as in contradistinction to the seamless unity of mind and world. I'm not sure that those are two discreetly separate experiences. That there's some, there's some middle ground. There's something about being human that means making sense. Mm-hmm. And making sense involves memory and concept formation. Mm-hmm. And I, I, that bleeds off into projection, for sure. But how much of it can we actually let go of? You know, if we live in, if we live in nothing but the moment, the sensory intake, everything is complete chaos. Mm-hmm. That's not the recommendation. <laughs> Oh. That's, it's not. It's not a. It's not an a, a utter absence of cognition, which would be an abandonment of our human condition. I mean, that would just be th- throwing up our hands and saying, "Never mind." No, I mean that's that's not at all what's what's being suggested. Um, I, and I hope this will become clear as as we go along. But what is being suggested is to look at how much interpretation and meaning making goes on. And that's, that's where the projection comes in. The, the perception or the pattern making, that is the, the natural interface between the mind and the world. Nothing, nothing wrong there. Mm-hmm. Um, and m- my only suggestion would be, even when you're saying, oh, that's happening because the light's coming through the clear story window, we don't have to, we don't have to think this every time, but that is a general attitude we hold as best as I know at the moment. Ah, so it's about provisionality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's it's that. About yeah, the the mm-hmm. uh, how close that is to the forefront of one's consciousness at every moment. So it's exactly. all provisional. Exactly. Okay. Right. Um, which which doesn't I mean. I've heard you say that about a million times. I know. Why I can't. Can you say it again then? <laughs> that, yeah, that, that, that it's really about holding everything provisionally, even the things we're pretty darn sure are true. Like the, yeah, yeah. That the molding is closing. Yeah. My, be, my best guess is that that's, that's, that's what's right. good. And, and, and it might be my best guess for my whole lifetime, right? right? I, never, right. I may never, never have any. Give that one up. Give that one up. I may, may never have any it's evidence. going outside. Yeah, I think it really is snowing. I think it really is snowing. Yeah, I think it really is snowing outside. Right, but it's a, but it's it's it's, it's, it's just a different attitude. It's a different mm-hmm. kind of it's it, um, much less like okay, what am I? What can I line up as I'm certain about? Absolutely nothing, you know. But, but I have all these things that are working hypotheses at the moment that seem to be doing well, mm-hmm. but are subject to revision. If, if, if I peel this often enough, I may begin to get an idea of what it is. Uh, is this a little bit like 10 years ago, uh, one of the things I will never forget from a, a Zen retreat is I went to see the teacher and said, this is awesome insight, wow! And he said, great insight, now let it go. Just <coughs> drop it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, I assume that's similar to what you just said. Um. Not so much. <laughs> oh, um, I, I mean, I think I, I, I'm assuming that the, the message there was don't hold, don't attach to it. But that right. that that wouldn't mean don't come into relationship with it. I mean, I think the whole koan way is oh, about okay. coming into relationship with something like that. 
in a, in a rich and deep way and a provisional way. It's not, that, that's, that what you're describing, that's cutting off the mind road. That's just, if it arises, cut it off at the knees. It arises, cut it right. off at the knees. That's not what we're doing. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, when you go into a relationship with it, um, how do you know that you're in a relationship with it as opposed to being attached to it? I mean... Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you cultivate that fluidity? Well, the, so the nature of a relationship is that it's always changing, right? Word- it's always changing. Ah, okay. And as soon as you're sure you know what it means <laughs> or what its significance is in your life, it's become a thing. You know, it's become an attachment. Okay, okay. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So everything we're talking about is what Stephen Batchelor says when he says, you know, the the mystery of life is best expressed as a question. So what we're saying is all you have to do, not all you have to do, but but a part of that moving from projection to projectionlessness is to really see everything as a question. As far as I know, that's what's causing the lights, right? So keeping that provisional mind keeps you more aligned with the truth of impermanence mm-hmm. and it also keeps your mind soft. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It what does. Mean by the truth and spacious. Of well, uh, well, that's, that's <laughs> it's totally related to this kind of topic. Yeah. What yeah. is the truth of impermanence? Well, forget about the word truth. The fact that <laughs> things are impermanent. The, the apparent <laughs> fact that things are that things Right? But it's it's totally it's front and center. I mean we chant that we chant that all the time about Prajnaparnita. This is truth, not mere formality. So what what is truth? What is inductive reasoning? How does inductive reasoning fit into this provisionality, this this whole consciousness of provisionality? Um, inductive reasoning is is inherent to our species as as an adaptive mechanism, and we do it in Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Well, we're not arguing with it. Well, I'm not. I'm just. It's probably more skillful to keep that kind of mind, a soft, well, what I call provisional soft mind. mind. Yeah, provisional mind. Yeah. You know. It, it, Maybe I am going to live forever, but I have to treat myself as though I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, whatever I can get out of this time. Yeah. And I think it also opens up for us the possibility of looking for the places that we want to make things certain mm-hmm. and looking at what, mm-hmm. why do I need that to be certain? What's the, what, mm-hmm. what is that trying to solve? Mm-hmm. What, what fear or anxiety or something is that trying to solve in me and what would it be like to not need to solve it with certainty but to solve it with um, expanding the territory in which I uh, rely on the groundlessness of everything (laughs) Um, I have a question uh, that may or may not dovetail with yours but when you said um, how the concept we create our own reality creates this duality I wondered about the notion of karma and cause and effect and kind of <clears throat> where where that fits in yeah. the spectrum. Okay, hold on one second because I'm, I'm going there. Okay. okay? <laughs> um, anything else about, about this, just this piece of it? 
Well, I'd like to say something about what David is, is querying. Because I go back to the, 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 that very basic place where we begin to determine as a little tiny baby the other and self, that object relation of mother, that object relation of other, and our reliance on that other for survival and how big that is, that sort of the sense of object relations that we have. Mm-hmm. And how we can, again, deconstruct that to, or hold it as true, but also hold, I mean, also hold the rest, the provisional mind. That mother, mother will bring us food or she won't bring us food, and that's a very powerful, uh, as a baby, understanding. Um, yeah, so, so this is Red Pine's comment. In yeah. light of the Buddha's wisdom, the world doesn't exist. In the light of the Buddha's compassion, it doesn't not exist, right? Mm-hmm. How do we hold those two hold things? Yeah. 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 I think it's in it. I read it, but I don't know. Okay, so can I can I sort of carry on to the interruption? No, that was not an interruption. That was it. That was the thing itself. Okay. So um, then the Buddha said that we begin to talk about okay, so what's the alternative? And the Buddha says in the sutra, tranquility means oneness, and oneness means the Tathagata Garbha. Okay, so again he's saying tranquility, that place of rest and natural rest and peace, is when we understand the oneness of things. And then he says, he links that, and oneness means the Tathagata Garbha, so now we get to talk about that. Um, What happens, well, let's see. I think I have to do a little bit of um, Mahayana Buddhist psychology and, and, and philosophy. And we talk, talked, many of us, a couple of years ago about this in relationship to ideas of the self and soul. But let me do a recap because I think it's really important and not everybody has been there. So in the, in the Buddhist understanding of how the mind is, it suggested that there are eight or nine levels of consciousness, and the first five are the sense consciousnesses that come up in these in, the, in, in these quotes from the Lanka. So you know, sight, smell, hearing, taste, touch. Those are the first five consciousnesses. The sixth consciousness is the mind, which is seen in the same way as the sensory um, consciousnesses are, with thoughts as as its object. If hearing has sounds as its, as its object, the mind has thoughts as its object, which is already a pretty interesting way to think about mind, not as this sort of all-encompassing, overarching Machiavellian you know, generator of everything that makes life difficult, but actually just a kind of sensory organ that's, that's dealing with thoughts, dealing with the... Um, the inner sensory awareness in the same way that the first five are dealing with outer sensory awareness. Okay, so that's one through six. And then seven, we'll touch on lightly, but come back to seven is what's called the poor, um, the poor tainted consciousness or the deluded consciousness, which mm-hmm. I, the deluded consciousness, which I refer, I prefer to call the mistaken consciousness. Mm-hmm. And this is the, the, par, the layer of consciousness that makes the mistake of thinking there's a self. 
And here's how it does that. In the eighth layer of consciousness, which is called the Alaya Vijnana, the storehouse consciousness, we have the repository of all of our experiences. So into the storehouse consciousness fall like leaves in the autumn all of our sensory, emotional, cognitive experiences. They just fall and pile up inside this repository. To me, it's quite beautiful to think that there is a part of consciousness that is completely able to receive everything. It doesn't refuse anything. It doesn't sort things into piles. It accepts and receives and can contain everything we experience. Is that fair to say it's not yours? It's everyone's? This is a place that we all share? That's a great question. Okay, so in the, in, the, in the ninth consciousness, that's the place where the bottom opens up of the eighth of each of us and joins together into one. So each of us has a particular repository which, which makes you, you, and me, me, right? It gives us a shape, but it's also joint and shared. That's not the Alaya Vijnana? That is the Alaya Vijnana. The what? Yeah. Alaya Vijnana. So that's consciousness. Mm-hmm. The eighth is, yeah. So, so the seventh level, the mistake it makes about thinking there's a self is it looks into that repository, that storehouse consciousness, sees all this stuff and makes a story about it. Mm-hmm. Organizes it, lines it up, makes a narrative, um, a, be- you know, a beginning, a middle, and an end. Okay? So um, that's, the, that's where, in this view of the human mind, we get into trouble, is when we start thinking that that story that the seventh is making up about the contents of the eighth is true, is the, is the only way that you can experience that eighth consciousness, that Alaya Vishnana, is as a story, as a narrative. So everything has to have meaning. Everything has to line up somewhere. It has to have a place in the narrative rather than just being there. Okay? Does that make enough sense? All right. So when things fall into the um, storehouse consciousness, they do what's called perfuming the storehouse. Each thing comes in and it has its effect. It leaves a trace in the storehouse consciousness. And if enough, um, if, if the trace is strong enough or, or the same thing happens over and over again, if, if it reaches a certain sort of critical mass, it turns into a seed. And eventually the seed sprouts as karma, as future karma. So that's how karma works. The leaves of experience fall in, they perfume the storehouse, um, they leave a trace. Sometimes those traces are strong enough to turn into seeds, and then the seeds sprout, and we have the, the, the result of future um, events, which is karma. Okay. So, then, um, what is beautiful and mysterious is that in Mahayana philosophy this alaya vijnana, this this storehouse consciousness is also mysteriously the location of the Tathagata Garbha and it's it's not as if one contains the other, it's more like if you had 
two translucent, translucent sheets of paper, you know, and you lay them on top of each other and you could see them simultaneously occupying apparently the same space at the same time. This, it's a beautiful mystery. The Tathagata Garbha is the, um, the inherent Buddha nature that each of us contains. Tathagata is a, was a, is a title for the Buddha, um, and it refers to, to enlightenment, to awakening. Garbha means, in Sanskrit, means uh, a womb. It also means the embryo that grows inside the womb. And um, by extension, therefore, means the innermost thing, the thing closest in, or as we might say, the most intimate thing. So somehow magically occupying the same space as the Alaya the storehouse consciousness, which is the repository of all of our experiences, the um, completely receptive repository of all of that, occupying that same space is our inherent Buddha nature, which is not yet um, manifest. It's, it's in the it's the, in the form of an embryo in a womb. It's both the embryo and the womb. So the implication of that is, you already have it. <laughs> it's always been there, and it's not something um, separate or outside of our humanness. It resides in that very place where we hold all of our experience. And if we can transform storehouse consciousness into womb of the of Bodhi, womb of enlightenment, that's that's what we're doing. That's that's the attempt. And all of that happens within us as as human persons the way we are, not by dint of some special thunderbolt from heaven. Okay, so I'll pause there. So the very thing that's underneath those two pieces of paper is the same thing. Yeah. And you can just view it through yeah. the Tathagata Gaba or mm. through storehouse consciousness. It's not a different thing. We don't have to transform anything. Yeah. It's the same mm. object yeah. underneath or the same event in our lives or <coughs> the same anything. Yeah, beautifully said, yeah. Wow. The same many, the things. same many things, yeah. the same, yeah. same the stories, yeah. all the stories, the same all of the and many things. Yeah. Wow. And in tr- <laughs> <laughs> oh, <wow>. say it again. <laughs> say it again, Nick. With that's an interesting <coughs> idea. That's an interesting because it is all the things, right? Mm-hmm. Say the same thing again. Well, go ahead. Do you mean or just, what? Yeah, yeah. That there's just two pieces of. <coughs> Transparent paper, and, and you're looking through. But they're not exactly transparent, right? They actually hold these two spaces. I don't know anymore. <laughs> it's like, um, I think what was striking me was that there's no need to change the thing that's that we're looking at right. beneath those two. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm pieces of paper, there's not this idea of transformation or transmutation or trans anything. It's just that thing can be viewed through the 
sort of tracing paper of the self and the storehouse, the Alaya Vishnyana thing, or the Tisaga the Garba. Yeah. <coughs> with no change <coughs> necessary. And it's really, it's funny you asked me to say it again because it's a slippery, it's slippery thing. It's like, wait a minute, I don't yeah. even know what I just said. Yeah. I, I, I don't know this really, I just suddenly glimpsed it for a moment. Um, yeah. But aren't we observing the storehouse which is below? That's what I was also wondering. We're observing through these two things to the storehouse below, and that's. And depending on the view we see, which one we choose, which one gets preference, we can hold the storehouse below. All the, is that right? The storehouse is one of the two one things. Of the two. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then the question becomes, what? Yeah. <laughs> what's, what's the right, thing? And what's the other yeah. thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Doesn't that create duality? If you're viewing it from this or this angle, isn't there some place where you're holding Well, yeah. And, and so... Actually, in, in Mahayana philosophy, there is a bit of an idea of transmutation because or transformation because what you're transforming is projections into Buddhas, basically. right? You go from the projections, throwing the projections into the Tathagatagarbha, the giving birth to Buddhas instead of projections. Okay, so, so, but the koan move, the thing, the thing that is so radical about the koan tradition is to exactly remove that duality and to, and to do what you just did. You made the natural koan move, which is to say, oh, they're just ways of describing the same thing. They're ju- it just depends what lens you're looking through, right? Yeah. So that eliminates any idea of inherent or latent or it's, it's like this now and it's going to be like that then. No, they're both true now. Yeah. So the event happened, mm-hmm. and it's just the projections about the event that we can drop away. Yeah. But the event itself is real. Doesn't need to change right. or be held differently. It's just that the adornment, the added extra of the projection, can be cleared. Exactly. Yeah. And then, and we return to that natural state of unity between interior and exterior, which which is what's revealed when the projections are dropped away. Yeah. I see what. Say, say a bit more about slippery. That. <laughs> Can you say a little bit more about that inside and outside piece? Okay, so so exactly what we drop away is the duality of subject and object, which is implied in we're throwing projections. When the projections drop away, we see that there never was a subject and object. There was only a continuous field, and that we, you know, we are provisionally, temporarily standing at this place in the field able to see, you know, this we're seeing from this viewpoint, but it's but we're part of the field. We're not outside it looking at it. We're the field looking at itself from this viewpoint. <laughs> that helpful <laughs> When I was thirteen I did transcendental meditation and me and my friend used to piss ourselves laughing when we'd see these videos of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi talking about the isness. The isness. That's what I was just going you're talking about really is that it's the whole field. Mm-hmm. And we just thought that was the funniest thing. <laughs> but I'm finally beginning to give what he might have been talking about here, which isn't it's not based on any conditionality. Yeah. Although we would probably say it's the maybeness, it's the maybeness. <laughs> 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 you know, you know that great story about 
Suzuki Shinryu, when someone asked him, um, you know, can you can you sum up Zen philosophy in a, in, a, in a sentence while standing on one leg with you know drinking water? Anyway, and and he said, yes, I can sum up all of Zen in two words: not always so. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So would that be the same as absolute and relative truth, or is that sort of not the same? Um. Yeah, it's it's like a, yes, absolute and relative truth are ways to talk about it and to sort of help us actualize it in our lives. Yeah, but they're kind of they're kind of stand-ins. I don't know that they're exactly synonyms. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. They're kind of skillful means. Well, they're a way to ground it. Yeah. And not get too lost in trying to figure it out in a moment. Yeah. Okay, should I, should I project out a bit more? <laughs> I think I'll, I think I'll go to um, I'll go to the the koans. Um, okay, so this this idea that already within us is this inherent Buddha nature. Um, there's a there's a story about a medieval Chinese nun who became a teacher. And her name was um, Chi Yuan Shingang. She had a profound opening as a student, and her teacher asked her, what was it like when you were gestating the spiritual embryo? She replied, it solidified, deep and solitary. So the sense of this profound inward turn dropping down through the layers of consciousness into the alive Vajrayana and resting in the Alaya Vishnana, resting in that place where we receive without comment all of our experiences, right? Resting in that place, suddenly that place became the womb of the Tathagata. That very place, she realized, was already the womb of the Tathagata. So the movement in practice was to rest there, to rest in that place of experience without comment, to rest in that place of the willingness to receive everything, to turn away nothing, to not make piles of good and bad. And when she could do that, when she could rest there, suddenly it was revealed that that was the womb of awakening. And that the spiritual embryo, as they called it, was was gestating there, was growing there. And then her teacher asked, when you gave birth, what was that like? Being stripped completely bare. So we have the first movement down and in, resting in the Alaya Vijnana, recognizing it as the Tathagata Garbha. And then there is, you know, this this embryo grows, and we have to do something with it. We have to give birth to it. It's not enough to just um, sit down there enjoying it. <laughs> we have to give birth, and in that process of giving birth, there is a way in which we do have to strip ourselves completely bare of of the projections, of the habits of mind, of the um, of our certainties, 
And it's in that process of deconstruction that we're able to give birth to something in the world that um, fulfills the bodhisattva vow. (laughs) So then her teacher asked her, what about when you met with the capital A ancestor? And she said, I met the ancestor (coughs) face to face. There are a lot of ways to understand what that ancestor is, but I'm thinking in terms of the Lanka, it's called an ancestor because it's what was already true about us. What she's meeting is herself. She's meeting that natural state of mind where where the field is continuous between inside and outside. She's meeting that um, awakening already existing. That thing that we were talking about last night that the koan reveals, not something new, but something that was already there inherent in you that you just didn't know yet. And that's what it means to meet the ancestor. You're, the, you're your own ancestor. You're meeting yourself before that got covered up, before that got obscured. Okay, so so then I'd like to step back into that realm of the ancestor with a capital A and and, and make it a little bit bigger. And and this, I hope, addresses the the question about karma. Um, One of the things that people, I think, quite rightly ask about, about Buddhism in general is, if there is no self, what is it that reincarnates, right? So the Mahayana answer to that question is this. What is continuous from life to life and throughout the length of a, of a one life is this Tathagata Garbha, is this um, potential Buddha nature in each of us. And so what reincarnates, if you believe in reincarnation, what keeps appearing is that inherent Buddha nature. Not a self, not the not the way, you know, not the, the, the each of us that comes into existence that we experience in life. But this desire for this this momentum towards awakening. That is the Tathagata Garbha. That is what keeps coming back, keeps coming back. And the way the Lanka describes it, I think, is particularly beautiful. It uses the language of um, classical Indian music, and it says that the the um, this this continuous thing, this continuous Tathagata Garbha, is like um, prabandha, which means music in the way that we think of music. And so, music is a big category of stuff. That's the continuity. That's the thing that keeps emerging over and over again. And then, in each lifetime, um, it appears as lakshana, which is a particular melody. So you've got this this continuous, the continuous stream of music appearing again and again and again as individual melodies. so, So that... That desire for awakening, that that potential of awakening, right, contains both those aspects. It also, yes, it also contains the aspect of embodied life and experience. Yeah. 
So, like a kind of radical extension of, of what the Lanka is saying, and, and please understand, this is my radical extent. This is not in the text, but this is how it's kind of where you have to go, given you know wh- what you're saying is. Um, I think we we've had maybe some of us a, a model of karma as being. Um, this thing that we drag around lifetime after lifetime trying to get rid of, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so we're, we're in, with each new life, you know, we're showing up at the schoolhouse door again with our, our heavy sack of karma on our back, you know, and hoping that this time we're going to get it right, you know? And, and in fact, what, what the Lanka is, is suggesting is that um, there is this m- momentum in the universe toward awakening and... and it, that's not even personal. I mean, it's not even about your awakening or my awakening or anybody's awakening. It's about awakening and that we are the melodies that get sung in this much larger entropy toward awakening that's happening in the universe. We're just kind of passive agents of this, um, the universe's desire for enlightenment, right? It's just singing the melodies through us, but we, you know, we're just the we're just the the agents of that, the channels of that. We don't. It, it doesn't matter. But what we have the capacity to do, which is so amazing, is join with that exploration of what the melody is, so that our lives become a kind of co-creation between this impulse towards awakening from the universe and the individual particular melody or circumstances, the karma through which it's being expressed in our lives. And that's what I mean by understanding. How, how do we hear the melody being sung through us? And then how do we join that and maybe enhance it, you know? Hmm? Like harmonizing, yeah. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.